Listener Production. Shares. Market. The S&P. The ISX. Stocks. This is the Motley Fool Money Mailbag. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our very special Sunday Mailbag Edition. That's right, I've been away for three weeks. The specialness has only increased, though. So I'm going to call it the very, very special Sunday Mailbag Edition. Two varies, because I'm here, which is not so special, but he's here. And that's actually also not very special. But together, <laughs> together, the, the whole is worth more than the sum of the parts. Thank goodness for everybody. Of course, I am Scott Phillips from The Motley Fool, and he is Andrew Page, the founder and managing director of strawman.com. A business whose description I had promised to commit to memory, mate, but I've unfortunately failed yet again. What, what is strawman.com? It's not easy. I appreciate it. We're, we're a private online <laughs> investment club. That's more complicated than you'd imagine to remember that. Mate, um, thank you for rejoining me on a Sunday. We had a ball chatting uh, on Friday. Good to get the team back together, get the band back together and, uh, and chat all things finance, investment, business and just tangents generally. Um, I am also appreciative of all of those uh, listeners who sent us back some feedback, uh, questions over the break, um, some, some thoughts. We're going to share a heap of those today. And a reminder, while the mailbag is pretty full, we'll get as much of it done. If you want to add to that mailbag, let me get these out up front because I didn't do it on Friday. You can email us, info, I-N-F-O, at fool.com.au. Hit us up on Twitter. I'm at TMFScottP. That's Twitter and Instagram. While you're on Twitter, check out the Motley Fool AU. Check out Sage underscore Simeon. That's Andrew's account. Or at Strawman Invest. On Instagram, you get me and the Motley Fool, those same Twitter handles, at TMFScottP at The Motley Fool AU, or on Facebook, Scott Phillips Money or The Motley Fool Australia. Andrew, you're still exclusively on Twitter, I imagine? I am. Nothing changed? You didn't, you didn't kind of join the TikTok craze while I was gone? <laughs> I didn't. No. <laughs> Good to know. Good know. to know. I've got enough. I've got enough on keeps my Keeps me yanking, Twitter mate. When, keeps you you join, t- when you finally join TikTok, my world will actually kind of, you know, turn on its elbow. So if you can, if you can stay off TikTok, that'll make me a whole lot happier. Oh, man. Just, just Twitter alone's enough of a time suck. <laughs> like the last thing I need in my life is something else to distract me from doing actual work. Hashtag influencer. Mate, um, well, let's get straight into the mailbag then, shall we? Yeah. All right. Okay. First one comes from Paul, who says, Hi, Scott and Andrew. Please refer to me as Paul which helps actually because it's also Paul's name. Uh, So we will refer to you as Paul, Paul, because you are Paul, but also because you asked nicely. A short-time listener, he says, and a first-time questioner. I'm absolutely loving the podcast and greatly appreciate the gift of your time, knowledge, and thoughts that you give us twice each week. It's our pleasure, Paul. Thank you, mate. A question, firstly, he says. You mentioned that trading is simple, but not easy. I totally agree, he says. And then he goes on, but I'm going to stop him there because Paul's a short-time listener, and that's cool. We love it that you've joined us, Paul. Thank you. We would have always made the distinction between trading and investing. Trading is stupidly difficult and, in my view, a waste of time. (laughs) Investing, however, which is long-term, which is all about multiple years, not trading, which is buy, sell, buy, sell, buy, sell, buy, sell. That is simple, but not easy in my view. So I will editorialize there before going on. Paul says, totally agree. However, given it's so much easier than, say, 10 years ago, on top of the fact that so many young people are now investing in the share market, won't that, by definition, push prices up and thus reduce returns? So we all agree that historically the market has grown on average by 10%, but won't this, brackets, probably largely blindly, close brackets, shoveling of money into the market result in reduced return? Maybe 6%, growth plus dividends. The comparison is housing for rental return, where a weekly rental of 1% of the purchase price seems to be the acceptable metric, which by definition results in negatively geared assets love to hear your thoughts so around there's a whole lot more money because the young people are investing more it's easy to invest is that not by definition going to reduce our future returns 
No, not at all. No, no, we're safe. But we know supply demand, more supply of money, same stocks to invest in, doesn't it? I mean, mathematically, he's got a point, doesn't he? Uh, There's there's, there's something that, um, a bit of of nuance in that. And it actually, it it relates to what what we sent to Strawman members a week or so ago in, in our weekly update. There was actually, I came across... A bit of research from the eighties, and there's a Wall Street, 1987, in fact, and the oh, Wall dear. Street article in that, which which Precipitous quoted this, year. which, which um, yeah, which quoted some research there, um, saying that booms and busts are inevitable, no matter right. what. Right. And the, and the too long don't read version of that is it's just because <laughs> of human nature. So we've got right. much more people coming in, and maybe there's more money, and therefore maybe on aggregate the market is much larger. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean that anyone's being smarter. Right, and it doesn't. It doesn't mean, in fact, because a lot of the people are coming in, a lot of people are finding out this out the hard way. Because what attracts people to the market are easy returns, and you yeah. see easy returns at the top of the market <laughs> when you've got a yeah. couple of years. You can say, "Look how much money I made," and you know, I've often talked about that that mm-hmm. that pain of there's nothing more painful than watching your neighbour get rich, <laughs> you know, and and so you get in, and then whack. We have seen. We are in. We are. I know that the all ordinaries isn't in technical bear market territory mm. but certainly if you're in small cap and growth mm. Or, mm. or technology you absolutely are and you know and same with the nasdaq it's, it's horrible mm. um now in 2022 there's much as you say there's much more people there's much more information of it's, it's, it's never been easier to get your hands on information than it is mm. today and yet we've just seen a quarter of of this section of the market's value mm. evaporate um, and that will always happen. It will always happen. So I, I won't go into detail on the study, but what was interesting about it was that they gave they gave the participants what was essentially a bond kind of instrument. So it wasn't – in the share market, you've got to try and guess what the company is going to be earning in the future and how people are going to bid on that. And all it's, it's quite, it's quite as, as we say, um, simply simple but easy but not simple. Yeah. Um, uh, but even with these highly idealised – assets where you knew exactly what the cash flow was going to be people would start bidding them up and following momentum (laughs) and doing all these things and it was just like it turned out that just you just by simply holding it you would have done very well some by interesting some participants did extremely well by just being Mm -hmm. a warren buffett saying oh this is really cheap i'm just going to buy it now and hold it till till it comes due did it did did much better than the average anyway they re-ran the experiment with tr- with traders from oh from Wall Street, oh they did they did worse than the students. <laughs> you know right? what? I'm not slightly surprised. People who have studied it their whole lives. Here is an yeah. instrument. This is what yeah. it's going to yield. It's going to get. There's going to be a dividend off this. This is exactly what it's going to be, and this is exactly what it's when it's going to be paid. <laughs> but you can trade it amongst yourselves if you want. Yeah. And they did, and people were just doing because they th- everyone thinks they're smarter. Yeah. Everyone thinks that well, I know this doesn't make sense, but I'm rel- relying on the greater fool theory. <laughs> And yeah, it doesn't really make sense if I hold this, but I reckon if I sold, if I bought it now, I can sell it to someone for a little bit more. All of these stupid games, and 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 we are the same. You could go back ten thousand years in a time yeah. machine, yeah, true. and take someone take someone from the fertile crescent, mm-hmm. and and bring them up and raise them up today, and they're identical. They they could probably be the next whiz bang computer program. Our, our biology has not changed in that ten thousand years, and it's not going to change much in the next ten thousand years. Certainly not going to change over the next few decades. So I, I can say with absolute supreme confidence that, that no, the answer to that question is no. Okay, but you're talking about booms and busts, which by definition gyrate, for want of a better word, around the average, 
right? The average result of the market has been 10%, despite booms of 50% and busts of 40%, whatever those numbers are. That, you know, despite those things, the average is still the average. Whether, you're making the point that booms and busts will be forever, and I think that's absolutely right. I have no doubt you're 100% accurate there. But it's possible, isn't it, that those booms and busts could simply oscillate around a lower average because of the sheer weight of money, that the booms might be higher or lower, the bus might be higher or lower, but overall, if you've got more money chasing the same assets, the average price is higher, and therefore the future returns will be lower. Um, we know that as a matter of course, if you, you know, the, the higher price you pay, the, the lower your return is going to be, literally mathematically by definition. Doesn't that weight of money coming into the market push prices up to a point where those future returns simply aren't there because of the amount of money, which is kind of Paul's point? Oh gosh, that's a good question. Yes, I see what you're saying. So, so uh, yes. So let's say let's say it, it's at the end of of 2021, where there's a lot of money that had been flowed into the market, and that yep. that that had made the market larger, mm-hmm. and therefore more quote unquote valuable. It's not yes. the right word. More expensive yeah. is a better yeah. word. <laughs> um, but the thing you're buying exists in the real world, hasn't mm. changed that much. Mm-hmm. There is still really a business out there called Microsoft. There's really a business out there called Netflix, and they yep. still exist today, yep. and they haven't changed too much. And the earnings that they've got, you know, you could debate as to exactly what it would have, could have, should have yeah, been, yeah. But, yeah. but they're more or less the same. So in that scenario, as the more, yes, prices, money goes in, it pushes prices up, the higher, there's an inverse relationship between prices and future returns. The higher mm-hmm. the price is, the lower the, the expected returns over time mm-hmm. and vice versa. Yep. But but then there's this wonderful um, correcting mechanism, mm-hmm. which which we've just gone through, in fact, mm-hmm. um, and potentially still going through, where that's, as I said, 20, a quarter of that has just evaporated. Yeah. So, so... So over, on very long periods of time, yes, it will get more and more valuable because the, the value of human society and our endeavours will mm-hmm. continue to increase in value. Yep. So the, the business, if you add up the value of just the ASX today and compare that to 20 years ago, it's worth a lot more. Mm-hmm. Not because just purely because more money's gone into it, but because the things that they've gone into are more valuable today. The businesses and the and businesses based off a very objective view of the cash flows that they're generating are just worth more. The economy's larger. There's more people around. We're making more valuable things, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, so no, no, I don't, I don't, I don't think in the aggregate over time is that place forward that you're just getting lower and lower and lower returns. The, the, Paul is right in the sense that during periods where lots of money is flooding in and to a point where it's pushing up prices beyond fair value before intrinsic ahead of yes absolutely Mm -hmm. that is going to make it much harder but as sure as night follows day there's going to be a washout and the pendulum is going to swing too far and you can buy the same kinds of things at much much lower prices um i think it's a good good point yeah um i'm gonna i'm gonna agree with you mate from a different perspective um paul if those things were static that would absolutely be true all else being equal as i said on friday ceteris paribus my favorite latin phrase from high school economics um, it would be true. If there was simply more money chasing the same assets, uh, then by definition, it would be higher. A couple of things that work in our favor. The first is, as Andrew's already pointed out, uh, the value of the market will, the value rather than the price of the market will continue to grow if human endeavor, democratic capitalism keeps creating value. So there's always that. We're chasing a moving target and an upwardly moving target. Even when prices you know, oscillate, almost every year, more value is created by these companies, even if they're not recognized in prices. So that's the first thing. Second thing is, what I love about the stock market, which I don't love about the housing market, and I'm talking about total markets rather than individual assets here, as a total. The housing market in Australia is the housing market, is the housing market, is the housing market. 
that it is the sum total is 100% of available housing is by definition captured in that market. Every buyer, every seller, everyone living in a house, it is the total market. The stock market is a very, very, very small in a relative sense, so certainly in terms of numbers, proportion of total business in a country. So I don't know how many small businesses there are in Australia, but I would say, I'm going to say a million small businesses. Probably it's half that, maybe it's double that, I don't know. Call it, call it a million. Actually, call it half a million. Mm. There is 2,000 max instruments listed on the ASX. So as a percentage of the available assets, of the available businesses to invest in, it's a small, small portion. And so you're kind of getting the opportunity to, to invest in what's largely the cream. There are some rubbish in there too, by the way, but largely the cream of the, of the market because you're buying in just that space. Now, would more money in the market entice more businesses to list? Probably, yeah. Um, but because it's not the whole thing, that growing money doesn't have to be invested in the same number of businesses. You may see more companies list. You may see fewer companies list. Um, you'll also see, by the way, if the ASX ends up being a larger dollar proportion of total businesses because those businesses get bigger, then it can grow faster than everything else. And again, underpinning Ram's point about, about earnings. Last point very quickly, um, if that was going to be true, it would have been true over those 10 or 15 or 20 years. In fact, we started putting more money in the super in 1996. So we're now 36 years later, uh, 26 years later, sorry. Um, uh, there's no evidence the peers have meaningfully expanded. So also, as much as it might be a risk something to think about, and you're right to ask the question, Paul, it's a, it's a really good thought experiment. Um, there's zero evidence that it's actually making a difference. Um, the last thing, actually, so last thing was gonna be the last thing. The ne next last thing is the new money coming into the market by young people. In Think about the average percentage, right? Let's say the average investor right now is 55, pick a number, and has an average of 200 grand in their account. Again, I'm just picking numbers. The average young person says, I'm gonna start investing. They're going to start investing with a hundred or a thousand or two thousand or five thousand dollars. So the incremental value of the money being added is much, much, much less on average than the average per investor already in the market. So the money being added to the market from that, um, and you're right, the phenomenon is real. More people are investing, which is great, but the money being added by those people is simply is really, really small relative to the money already in the market because there are existing companies, existing investors, larger average portfolios, um, adding a couple, you know, it's, um, it just doesn't make enough of a, of a difference. It's like an average worker, right? The average retiree retires on a, on a salary much larger than the average person entering the workforce for the first time. Just because that's the way these things happen. It kind of works the same with, with, uh, with investing. I'll, I'll just um, add one more thing as well, mm, is please. that the, the, um, the beauty of the market is as well as that uh, we, we talk about this. It's like when we talk about the economy, you yes. know, well, what's yeah. the economy? It, there's, there's lots of, as you've just said, there's lots of different parts of that. It's mm. the same with the market. Mm. So if you don't have to approach this on a, on an aggregate level, you, 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 even on the ASX, which is a tiny market globally, mm. you know, there's 2000 choices in there. Yeah. And so will there will will even if you did think in aggregate there was becoming more and more competitive and less and less value you will always find pockets of extreme value mm. I would argue and that's that's the job of, of yep. you as an investor I, I would as a stock, if you're picker, a stock picker though yeah, yeah yeah not if you're sorry you're right if you're just no, and we often speak of the value of just, uh, the value of just a broad based ETF yeah yeah but if you're a stock picker, um, mm -hmm. and this is this is what I love to do. This is this is the thrill of the hunt. You know, yeah. two thousand companies find, find a great business that no one yeah, else is, exactly. is 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 looking at or it doesn't value as, as much as exactly. it should, yep. and buy it. And yep. and there's there's dozens and dozens of them out there. 
Nicely put. Nicely put. Hey, um, Paul says, he goes on to say, I would love to do a whole show on the following topics, please. We kind of said before the holidays, we do some uh, some uh, topic shows. They got, got some good feedback, by the way. Thank you to those of you who responded about those things. We had to do one on Bitcoin. Uh, hopefully, we'll never do one again. No, I, I lie. I actually <laughs> promise we would, which makes me sad. Um, future, uh, future Scott wasn't worried, but now Future Scott is current Scott, and current Scott's not very happy about that. <laughs> what um, did I promise? Paul, uh, I, I promise we do a follow-up episode. Um, Paul said he wants an episode on ETFs, one on investing other markets and one on recession depression stagflation and things that impact these like interest and jobs so we might cool. do those things nice uh, he says, if you have already done them please point me to the episodes we've always we've always talked about those kind of things we haven't really done a whole episode we might do that paul i'll um i'll keep mm-hmm. those three things on the on the on the back burner um, we tend to do kind of timely stuff when we have the opportunity but um between annual leave and just general uh things that are worth doing we might we might come up come back to those so thank you for the idea um and thanks for the thanks for the email paul he says, uh, only look for general advice. Thanks heaps. Yeah, we know. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate it. Hello, Scott, says Adam. Uh, sorry, hello, says Adam. Scott asked if we would like the Sunday podcast delivered sooner in the day. If this can be done quite easily from your end, that absolutely would be appreciated from mine. They've taught me so much, so please pass on my thanks. Well, it's been passed on, Adam, and we have made the podcast an 8 o'clock Sunday podcast. So hopefully you're enjoying it. Uh, Nathan wanted it at 5 a.m. He says, hi, Scott, just responded to the call out, read the episode, drop time. 5 a.m. Sunday would be awesome. So I can listen while walking the dog. I don't, want to, get, I don't want to get up that early. Oh, uh, exactly. Well, no, I'm doing that. Exactly. It was a habit of waking me when the sun is about to rise. Thanks for all in you on rant page <laughs> do. Cheers, Nathan. Uh, Nathan, we've started at 8 o'clock. Hope that's early enough. Probably not for your walk, but uh, we'll see how we go. Um, Genevieve says, Dear Scott and Andrew, just a quick note to say thank you for changing the Sunday podcast release time. It made my Sunday. Cheers, Genevieve. P.S. I definitely agree with Andrew. Read the significance of the internet. Uh, thanks, Genevieve. Appreciate that. Thank you. I, can I say I've I've rethought about that episode or that part of that episode a few times. Well, just just remind late. remind people what what we talked about. Well, here's the, I I didn't I don't think I did it enough justice, and I think you and I disagreed, but disagreed on different topics. Um, so we talked about we talked about the internet, and my you and I talked on Friday about consumer surplus and the fact that there's a whole lot of benefit from things like you know the advancement of technology in cars, uh, and they're a big deal, but haven't necessarily created any economic incremental value right the fact we've got EBA I mean maybe a few less crashes but you know the fact I've got air conditioning and power windows and heated seats and GPS in my car and whatever they haven't actually created any economic value maybe tiny 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 amounts right but there's massive consumer surplus my argument or the argument I tried to make was that I don't think the internet has actually if you looked at the the trajectory the the long-term graph uh, from bottom left to top right of economic surplus economic growth GDP whatever you call it I don't think we'll see a step change because of the internet. So my argument was the internet as a technology has revolutionized everything, but I actually don't think it's created a whole lot of incremental value compared to what would have been created without it. It's changed the way things are done. Uh, you know, people's jobs have changed. We're doing this from home. We probably have to do it from a studio otherwise, Ram, or maybe we wouldn't exist. We'd be digging ditches or something. Um, I, I still actually, I still, I still think I'm right, despite your view on Genevieve's view. Um, massively significant, massively like just change so much stuff so much stuff massive 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 changes but i'm just not entirely sure there's evidence that it's actually chain it's actually created economic value in the way we measure it. again which is not gp is a horrible to a horrible measurement that's right? probably it's like, the it's problem it's the least right? worse one we have how we measure it's the least it. worse one we have yeah. but yeah. but i'm all, but you know like if, if you took away the internet if we have in a parallel universe i'm not sure international gdp is any lower if the internet was never invented than it is now now, yeah. would we, you know, do we have more stuff to watch on Netflix? Yes. Can we game online? Sure. Can you want to do this podcast? Yes. Is there value in all those things? Yeah, absolutely. I'm just not sure there's incremental, 
actual tangible value created. Uh, maybe called monetary value is probably the better way to describe that's, it. Because I think that's that's probably the that thing was what that I was trying to make. We're struggling to get past. But yeah. I, 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 I go back to your example of a, of a car. So you sort yeah. of say, well, there's the air conditioning, seat warmers, there's Wi-Fi yeah. connectivity, you know, whatever <laughs> you've got in a car. It's like, has yeah. that created dollar-wise? I don't know. Yeah. But as a, as a human being, yeah. is there more value to me than driving like you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, no, no. A, a, a ton of aluminium around, <laughs> you know, which is guzzle all this gas yeah, and just didn't yeah, have all the luxuries. Yeah. I, I would say, yeah, yeah. G- give me a car from twenty twenty two as opposed to something even from two thousand. It's it's like yeah. it's yeah. a it, much 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 better. So when I, think, I say, I think when we're I both, say we're value, both agreeing, both disagreeing about different things. I think. Yeah, this, this is the problem, right? So I say, when I say sort of value, I sort of mean value as a human, <laughs> and this is the value that matters, right? Like yeah, money yeah. is just something that oh, is just yeah, right. something we right. use to measure things, and it's a very yeah. cr- imperfectly, you know. Yeah. So it's sort of yeah. like on your point, yeah, I think there's, there's something to be. I have to think more deeply about it. But in terms mm-hmm. of has is my life. Do I have more value as I would define value in yeah. my life because yeah. of the internet? I'd say hell yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. I think. If you go back to 1900, or no, 1800, look at the Industrial Revolution. The things that were done at that point genuinely improved measurable GDP in excess of um, population growth for, the, for, for probably the first time in a very long time. Economic growth roughly tracked population growth forever through human history because there's one person doing one job and one job gets done one way with manual labour and all that kind of stuff. And we added technology in the world the way it used to be used which wasn't just bits and bytes and and you know nbns but technology being machines that help us do things spinning wheels through to increase productivity right through to factory mm. automation like that yeah productivity increases in an economic sense i'm just not sure the internet has had the same in fact i'm absolutely well no, i'm not sure anything I have a, a very large suspicion that the consumer and again to your point about airlines on friday the consumer surplus created by the internet is phenomenally large and I, again i don't want to step away from that for a second i don't want to i'm not I'm not doing the troglodyte thing of oh, the internet doesn't matter it hasn't changed my life it changed my life dramatically um but i'm just i think in terms of monetary value created probably the first big revolution with genuine societal revolution that i don't actually think has, has moved the gdp dial in fact it's probably done the reverse um, because personal services have taken over, which actually aren't very productive. So, uh, you know, the amount of work you can do. If you're, if you're a personal services worker, if you're a healthcare worker, a hairdresser, a carer, uh, uh, whatever, um, the one-to-one, you, you actually, it's actually net, you know, one bloke can make a thousand cars, but one, you know, bloke can only look after one patient at one time. Right? It, it's just not, it doesn't lend itself to, to productivity the way we usually measure it. And again, I think that's probably the issue with GDP, right? That's the, the, the change we need to move as a society is probably to move away from that, which is maybe the bigger point rather than whether or not the internet was useful. Yeah. Mate, um, Andy emailed us. And, uh, and speaking of Genevieve, Andy says, Sky Scott and Ram, love the pod. And yes, it would be great to have a Sunday episode land earlier around 8am or so. We did, as you asked, Andy. So I can listen during my Sunday morning run. Then he says, who am I kidding? I hardly ever run, despite good intentions. <laughs> but maybe having the mailbag episode available would help with my motivation. Andy, we've helped you. You've got to help us help you. Help me help you, Andy. Help Andrew help you. Time to run. Get up. Off your backside. Go and run. Go on. There you go. Uh, pause, the, pause the podcast. Put the sneakers on. Off you go. Um, he says, uh, great range of topics discussed. Thanks. And then he says, Genevieve's question about investing in relationships got me thinking. So often on investing podcasts, yours included, the comments are aimed at the individual regarding decision making and risk tolerance. E.g., you need to choose the asset allocation which suits your personality. It will prevent you from making stupid mistakes at scary times. It's a good idea. I reckon that most retail investors, perhaps excluding millennials, are part of a couple or family. And there is no guarantee they have the same views reinvesting. 
Perhaps it would be good to acknowledge this more often. Sounds like you have very understanding and aligned wives. Lucky blokes. But not all of us are so lucky. I'm in my mid-40s. I've been investing in equities for a few years. I'm mad keen on it. Like Rami says, I find it lots of fun and devote considerable time into doing deep dives into companies, fund, financials, etc. I believe I have a solid long-term portfolio and I'm not overly bothered by the volatility. I see times like this as an opportunity to increase my holdings in quality companies, which are currently undervalued. You're on the right track, Andy. But then he goes on to say, but... Dot, 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 my lovely wife, who I deeply love and respect, is very risk-averse. It took me a lot of education and reassurance to convince her for us to start investing. Despite me warning about bear markets, she's panicking big time right now, wanting us to sell up and cut our losses. While I appreciate the advice to prioritise relationships over money, I'm not willing to throw away all the good foundation work I've done for my family's future just because she's scared. I know you blokes are not relationship counsellors, he says, and I'm not asking for relationship advice. There is no question as such, just a comment. I reckon there are a lot of people like me out there, especially at the moment. Thanks for raising the topic last pod. Full on, Andy. Good points, hey? Mm. I'm not in that position. You're not in that position. Um, thankfully, by dint of just, frankly, good luck, you and I have uh, wives we neither of us actually deserve. Uh, so we're in, we're in that boat, Andy. Uh, maybe you deserve your wife a lot more than uh, Andrew and I do, but we've been, we've been very fortunate. Um, it's not really a question necessarily, mate, but any thoughts that kind of stem from Andy's comment? I, I just loved what Andy was saying. He's just like, just ticked so many boxes there mm. Um, mm. in his approach and his thinking and... I've got no doubts whatsoever. Andy's going to do incredibly well over time, yeah. Because um, uh, it's just like you, you, you've you, you've overcome the biggest parts of it. You know, the, the rest mm-hmm. is just very mechanical and business-like. Once you get past, once the penny drops, yeah. and it yeah. so yeah. clearly has in Andy's case, it's sort yep. of like you know, yeah, he'll make a bunch of mistakes and he'll suffer mm-hmm. through difficult periods like we all do. But you know that 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 the, the light bulb has gone off, and that's just just so awesome to hear. Yeah, I don't know what I don't like I. I don't want to overplay my hand. It's not as though my lovely wife is is completely agnostic <laughs> to to all of this. Um, yeah. Uh, she don't. She definitely notices. Like when times are good, I'll sort of mm. say, "Oh, this is great. You know, things are going well." And then she knows when I'm not saying that. Mm. That hey, you haven't mentioned the shares for a while. <laughs> when we're yeah, watching the news, it's like you know, like, hey, what, how does that impact? You know, so yeah, she's yeah. she's she's not, and none of us. I'm not either, right? Yeah. Like it's not like it's very easy. It's very easy on a podcast or anywhere just to sort of talk about how oh, it's all silly and don't worry about it. It's like well, I, yeah. I do worry about it. You know, it's many a night you sort of sit there going, oh my gosh, this really sucks. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. I, I think one of the things that I've found very helpful for myself and also when involving my family is just mm. i i show a chart of the business so right, you can nice. you can get you can get a share market chart and you see this big fall and it's just mm. super scary um or you can show a chart of the sales or the yeah, right. profits or the cash Nothing. flows or something like that and generally speaking for all the good businesses you see this staircase pattern and like yeah okay you have a a recession or a covid type scenario and that like you know the step sort of falls backwards a little bit mm. but but the contrast between that and the share price is really stark and when you say, show someone a, a a bar chart of 10 years of each and every year the business pretty much going mm. up or at least a very very clear trend and say this is what we own and i think I'll be wrong on a bunch of times, but I think on average, most of them will continue to do this. Do, do we want to get off this train? I know, I know the market's not in a good place right now, 
and you look at the chart, it, it sort of there's a disconnect here. Here's the here's the business. This is what we own. We own at least yeah. a part of. And here's what the market thinks that that thing is worth. There's a there's a huge disconnect there. Mm. In fact, if anything, maybe maybe we should buy a little bit more, right? Because mm. unless we think that staircase is going to start heading downhill, um, this is this is an incredible opportunity. And I've also been doing it long. We've you know me and my lovely wife have been through this a number of times where she you know she she kind of gets it. It's kind of like yep. Yeah, Maybe we mm, should, mm, mm. but but I, just, I think that visual is very powerful. Um, I like that. Yeah, I like that. yeah. I'm going to add, mate, to that point about the visual. Um, uh, this is this is going to seem, and again, you know, I'm not being asked for advice, but this is going to seem almost trite. But grab a copy of the Vanguard 30 year chart and whack it on a wall somewhere in your office in a study next to it, in a, in a folder in a book somewhere, because what I think is really important is to talk about the volatility in a historical context. Talk about the GFC, talk about the dot-com crash, talk about the 87 crash, talk about the whatever's, the COVID crash, um, because it's, uh, it, it, perspective matters. If you're looking at the price since the last high or last month or last year, and it's down 10, 20, 30, 40%, I'm absolutely not sure that's scary. But if you've been investing for a few years, my guess is you've made some decent money, percentage-wise and dollar-wise. And if you can, you know, I, I don't think you should necessarily always analyze performance in, in true sense by looking at, you know, a price 35 years ago and saying, look, it's up from a dollar to two dollars, look how much money I've made, because annualized, that can still be a, a, a reasonably crappy return. But the idea that if you go from, as the Vanguard chart says, 10 grand to 160 grand, at any point during that time, you can almost, you know, draw some little crosses on lines at the top and bottom of each of those crashes, right? The 10 grand went to 120 grand, then fell to 90. They went to 150, then fell to 130. They went to 160, or whatever those numbers are. And so the sheer dollar value of the fall and percentage value of the fall, but I would just point it out. Look, yep, this fell really badly and that would have sucked, felt terrible at the time. But remember, this 10 grand way back here, look what it's worth now. Put those falls into some sort of context. So if that's useful, not only Andrew's point about businesses, which I think is a really, really strong one, but also just put that price movement in context because it is that natural inclination towards short term, the last high last month, this time last year, which really do lead investors astray from the longer term story, which is compounding works and it works phenomenally well despite those falls, not in the absence of them. So hopefully there's some, some value in there as well. Uh, mate, let's go to the next question we got from scrolling madly. Oh, here we go. Speaking of Genevieve, we're back again. Dear Scott and Andrew, she says, I want to say thank you so much for addressing my question about investing and relationships on the mailbag episode. I got such a thrill to hear it. Thanks, Genevieve. Your advice was wise and appropriately sensitive. Oh, thank you. It was not an easy uh, one to answer and uh, we acknowledge our uh, <laughs> lack of experience as relationship counsellors. So uh, I'm always mindful of just treating very carefully. Um, Genevieve says, I'm very glad you brought up the topic of unhealthy relationships. You're right. There are a lot of people in, out there in abusive relationships in which there is coercive control around money and that's never okay. I wanted to reassure you this is not the case with my dad. Awesome. Well, I understood why you inferred this may be the case given what I wrote. But that is very well intentioned and wants to do the best for me. He just has very fixed views and high self-conviction. I'm going to say, Genevieve, he might possibly just be an average bloke, unfortunately. I was going to say, there's a, there's a male <laughs> thing right Every there. Every female listener out here is like, oh my uh, God, I know one like that too. Yeah, yeah. Much as it, as it is an ongoing challenge, what has turned things around for me has been getting myself very interested and informed about all things investing, which has given me the confidence to gently challenge my dad's approach and take back the reins of my finances. Your podcasts have helped a lot in this, so thank you again. Full on, Genevieve. Genevieve, that's awesome. Thank you so much for the feedback. Uh, we're glad it was useful. We're glad it was sensitive enough, and um, we're glad to hear that things are things are going okay, and you're um, you're making some positive strides, which is just fantastic. So, Can very I make, very cool. Just a comment or two is that the 
I think reasonable people can reasonably disagree as well. Um, True. So, so you and I um, aren't very reasonable. Good point. Overlap <laughs> a huge amount on our thinking, yes. Yes. but our portfolios yes. are really different. You Almost know? entirely different. I, would there be more than two stocks that we own in, com- in common? Oh, probably not. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and look, uh, uh, straw man's a great example. It's a really broad church. You got yeah, some right. all kinds of different approaches and stuff. I used to be really militant almost about it. And they're like, "Why would you invest like that? That's stupid. This is how you invest. This is how." And I just just you know the the hubris that comes with being a younger man. <laughs> but I've just learned to be really agnostic about it, and and, and also recognition that there is no one correct way. The, the correct way is the way that best – I mean, obviously, obviously mm. you need something mm. that is well-grounded in, in fact <laughs> and observation and, you know, um, it's sort of been borne out and, and proven yeah. O- yeah. Over, over time and over various cycles. But there's a hundred different ways to skin the cat. The more important thing is that, okay, you've got to start off with something that's sensible, but it's got to be something that aligns to your own temperament. So in the case mm. of Genevieve and her dad, I think her dad was like way into gold stocks and all that kind of stuff. And I know a couple, I know a couple people who are pretty good at that. Not my, not, not many of them, by the way. Um, and not, <laughs> and not, and not my bag. I absolutely, yeah, it's yeah. just not for me. But you know, again, yeah. in a, in a former life, I would have said, oh, they're wrong, they're wrong, they're wrong. But mm. now it's mm. kind of like, well, is it, it's right for you then it's right for you. As long as you're not kidding yourself here on anything important, as long as we're all sort of sharing yeah. the same shared reality and yeah. we've got a very clear v- vision of it, that you, you you can approach this thing called the market in, in, in different ways. So it's just sort of, it's not about trying to proselytize to, to different people and say, you should, this is how you should invest. Yeah. Um, and you and I are a great example of that. Yes, you know, very good examples of very important things and uh, occasionally sometimes it comes to make some sense and is valuable for the podcast, so we, we appreciate <laughs> yeah. that very much. But thanks, Genevieve. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. Paul says, hello, wise fools. It seems most discussion in the finance world these days gives us a binary choice of going shares or ETFs if looking at equities. But I wonder what you both thought of adding some managed funds as another option, a diversifier, etc. I was thinking about this again after your discussion on the small ordinaries ETF and thinking how a managed fund might be a good option for some sectors. I was also wondering if there are any funds that were long-term focused rather than trading or quarter-by-quarter focused. I like Magellan Flagship, kind of like Chris Mackay's personal family office, as a long-term focused manager. But that is an LIC rather than a fund. Or possibly more importantly, what would you look for in a managed fund? For example, I don't want to chase the fund with the best performance that, that year as it seems like I am just buying at the top if I did that. Good man. Potentially, if Chinese wars allow, he says, Scott could explain using Lakehouse as an example on how it might fit into a portfolio and what to look for. I really like individual shares, but just as I like an ETF for some areas or market exposure, I was wondering whether you thought managed funds or active managers were an additional consideration worth looking at, at least for part of a portfolio in some sorry in some sectors he says thank you i really look forward to the pods each week and that's from paul may i'll have i'll have first swing at this one go for it um i'm going to talk out of both sides of my mouth paul and i'm going to do that deliberately and you can you can see what makes most sense to you on one level i think a managed fund in the current environment is a bit you know they say a camel is a horse designed by a committee right i think a managed fund can be the best of both worlds or the worst of both worlds. And let me explain why. If you buy an ETF, my in my view, an ETF, the way I... So I don't love thematic ETFs. I don't love those 
cybersecurity ETFs or a gold ETF or oil ETF or a bear ETF or any of that kind of active stuff where they're trying to choose. In fact, that's just a managed fund by another name, right? It's a managed fund that's listed on the exchange. So it's an exchange traded fund. The ones that I like a massive, massive fan of, and when people talk about ETF generally, most of them should be talking about these low cost, passive, super broad index-based ETFs. So I think about the ASX 200 or the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ or the, the you know, Vanguard as a, a global ETF. I own some of those. I'm not going to go through them one by one. It makes no difference to the, the price or the demand because the prices are set differently. But for full disclosure, I do own some of those. Um, that's how I would use ETFs. If I'm going to use an active ETF, let's take cybersecurity ETF, right? And if I'm an investor, I can think cybersecurity is a cool thing. But I also think lithium is a cool thing. Electric vehicles are cool things. If I'm going to buy an electric vehicle company like Tesla or a lithium miner, I need to understand not just is lithium cool and are people going to use it? Yeah. But who's doing the mining? How credible is it? What's the source? What's the commercialization? What's the likely future price? All that stuff you need to do before you buy a lithium miner or an EV company. Let's go back to cybersecurity. There's probably 20, 25 companies in a cybersecurity ETF. Unless you've done the work to work out how good those companies are, what their futures look like, what their price is, what their value is, what the, all that stuff. How can you buy the ETF? The reality is for most people, let me be really honest and frankly probably offensive to some people listening. If you've gone, cybersecurity is going to be a big thing, I'm going to buy the cybersecurity ETF, you have probably abandoned the process of analysis and valuation. And I want you to hear that and actually really take that to heart if it's someone who's done that. Because if you don't know enough to buy one of the cybersecurity companies outright, how can you possibly know enough to buy an ETF comprising 25 companies? And let's use an example. 1999, you could have bought a tech ETF because there's really cool tech companies like Yahoo and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Companies have gone broke since then. Maybe you've got Amazon there. Maybe you, maybe you have an eBay thrown in. Uh, but you've bought a whole lot of stuff, pets.com and whatever else was out at around the same time because the internet's going to be huge. And you're right. But the ETF lost 85% of its value over the next 12 months. And yeah, But I thought the ETF internet was going to be huge. It always matters how much you pay. It always matters what the component parts are. I really, really dislike thematic ETFs unless you've done all the work to understand whether those are the right companies, have attractive futures, are priced appropriately, have quality management teams, all the stuff you do on individual stock, just because you roll a few together. You know, buy, buying a bank ETF comprising the big four banks or buying one of the big four banks should be exactly the same analytical process. Buying an ETF saying, well, it's an ETF. It's got all of them there. I'm diversified. Uh, not very useful if the market uh, doesn't agree with the pricing you, you think is, is valid for that. So there's that, right? And I say that because when we then go to managed funds, your question is still the same thing. Does the fund manager have an edge? Does the fund manager bring extra return to you over that passive ETF? And, and why would you believe that? As you rightly say, you don't want to just base it on best performance last year, but you're choosing to decide whether or not you think a fund manager can actually earn you excess returns over the market benchmark. So if the market does 10%, you want to at least 10%, probably more, and by the way, that's after fees, not before. And there's a reason why 85% of fund managers lose to the market. Because A, they're not that, most of them don't have that much outperformance. And B, if they do, by the time you've paid the fees, you're kind of back roughly in line with the market again. And so you've taken a whole lot of risk. The other side of my mouth is I and Andrew and plenty of our listeners are their own fund managers trying to beat the market. <laughs> so, you know, if I say, Oh, fund managers can't beat the market. Don't buy shares. And I say, well, I'm going to try and beat the market by buying my own shares. I'm absolutely talking out of both sides of my mouth. Absolutely doing it. Um, the difference is I don't have to pay myself fees. And I also control what I'm doing and what I'm getting, when I sell, when I buy. 
um, all the stuff that kind of goes with that. So I, I'm more in control and I have more, uh, which by the way can be a bad thing if I'm bad at it. So, you know, again, it's both sides of my mouth. So do I think managed funds are good? I have owned shares in the MFF Capital um, ETF or LSE before. I don't anymore. I like Chris Mackay. I like Hamish Douglas. Um, there are some investors I really, really like. I like the guys running Lakehouse. The good mates of mine, they're really good investors. I like them a lot. Um, the, the, the question for you really is, why do you think a manager is going to continue to deliver superior performance rather than doing it yourself or buying an ETF? And most of the time for me, the evidence says on average, if I said that to all of our listeners, they went out and did it, eight out of 10 of them would actually lose to the market because that's the reality of it. So this, the odds are against you investing in a managed fund and beating the market with that managed fund. And that's why I would probably exclude it. I'd say either pick my own shares or I'll go ETFs. ETF, broad exposure, diversified, super low cost, getting the market return, less a tiny, tiny, tiny fee. Or doing it myself, I've got complete control over what I'm doing, when I'm selling, when I'm buying, how I feel about it. Um, fund managers have those incentives of you know selling, buying, selling, buying, all that kind of stuff. Hamish Douglas himself stepped away from Magellan because the results have been ordinary and it's impacted his mental health. And I hope he's doing well and I hope he's recovering and getting on with life because you know life's too short. Um, so we, we hope he's, he's doing pretty well. But um, yeah, I, I personally, I don't, there's not a role for managed funds in my um, portfolio for those reasons. But I'm a stock picker. If I wasn't to pick my own stocks and I want someone else to do it for me, as long as I thought they were better than me or better than the market, I might. Uh, trying, trying to analyse and judge that, though, is really, really hard. Ram, make some sense of what I just said for me, mate. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, you weren't listening, were you? No, I, I was. <laughs> it, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. It's, I mean, it's really hard, isn't it? Because it there's uh, generalisations are, are dangerous. And I, I think uh, the... Never, ever, ever generalise, mate. Never, ever generalise. <laughs> and uh, But the one generalisation that you often hear is that fund yeah. managers don't add value. And yep. that's that's because lots of people have looked at it and that's absolutely the case on aggregate. Yeah. Um, so, but then obviously within that, there's massive outliers. Yes, exactly. There's people like Peter Lynch and- well, Buffett you know, himself, right? Buffett himself. It's not, it's not a fund, but it's, but it's effectively a, you know, a stock picker buying and selling companies on behalf of the shareholders. Off air before, just we were on a, on a bit of a chat and we're looking at some other small fund managers and some of them have done incredibly well. Um, mm-hmm. True. So so it's it's tricky. And then, and then you're going to go, yeah. well- but which you've said is like, yeah, but but the history doesn't guarantee the future. Maybe that was yeah. a different type That's of market, you know, and yeah. that that is all very difficult. So it does ultimately depend on on trust or faith, perhaps is mm-hmm. the best word. But then again, if you're doing it yourself, you kind of you, you're just trusting in a different person. It just happens to be yeah. you, and yes, and, maybe, exactly. and maybe you're the easiest person to <laughs> fool. Yeah. So, it's, That's, so right. That's why I kind of go. I go. Oh, it's hard. Yeah. I think. I think for me, I would happily put my money with with some fund managers okay. um but they'd have to be meet a couple of things firstly i'd have to have a huge amount of trust in them mm. firstly i secondly i'd need to ensure that all of their money was invested in the fund themselves yeah, so yep a lot of the the guys that i know that do this their rules are if, well my family's wealth is in mm. this mm. and then I'm, I'm asking you to join me and then i'll manage yeah. all of it so if if they do well they they obviously benefit 
Um, and if they don't, they they wear it. They're just there's Which nothing. Are tough. <laughs> there's nothing better than the power of yeah. incentive. So I just I just feel it doesn't mean that they'll be successful, but it means that they're going to really try. Yeah. No, you're and, right. Yeah. And I and that you'd be surprised. There's there's quite a few out there that that do that. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to mention names because then people listen and, yeah. and, and things go bad. And I don't I don't <laughs> exactly. want it, I don't want to do any of that kind exactly. of stuff. Exactly. Exactly. But but also too, I'd want to, I'd want someone who's very clear in what they're trying to do. It's not enough to say we're trying to beat the market. Well, what's mm. your style? Yeah. You know, or I focus on this part of the market. I feel as though I've got an edge here. This is why we're going to do it. This is what I expect to happen. This is yeah. what you can expect from. If I was to find some small cap tech growth investor. And then one day they wrote an update for the March quarter and they'd put it all into bonds. <laughs> Even yeah, if they'd outperformed yeah. in that yeah. quarter, I'd be like, what the hell, man? Yeah. I didn't, yeah. if I, you know, I, if I wanted someone who was going to invest in bonds, I would have found a different fund manager. So I, I want yeah. you to be clear and consistent in what your intention is and your strategy is and, and the rest. And I want you to be mm-hmm. true to that. So um, I, I'm kind of waffling at this point. So it's, it's very hard. Is there a po- the, the, the question is, is there, a, is there legitimacy in, in what was proposed? Yes, absolutely there is. Yeah. I think we've given lots of caveats around that and the thing that you need to sort of think about. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, you know, as a friend of mine used to say, if you want to guarantee, buy a toaster because there's, there's no guarantees <laughs> in this game. And, and that's, that's what makes it really, really, really hard. True, true. Absolutely. Thanks, Paul. Good question, mate. Hey, um, let's go to a question from Alex, who says, Hi, Scott and Ram. He capitalises Ram, which I appreciate. I hope this question is not too late for your pre-record sessions. It is, unfortunately, but we'll still record it now. My question is inspired by your recent segment looking at Norway's sovereign wealth fund. What do you think of Australia's future funds? Uh, and various sub-funds, if time permits, he says. What do you make of the fund's performance over time? Is it worth retail investors trying to coattail the equity portion of the portfolio? Or is it very much like the index anyway? If you were responsible for the equity side of the fund, what would you do differently? Do you have a view on how much more capital should be going into the fund to bring them up to the uber status of its Scandinavian counterpart? Foolishly yours, Alex. I have some established views on this, mate. Do you have some thoughts? You, want me to you go, go first, first cuz I'm I'm right. busy googling the performance. Uh, <laughs> I'll come back no. with some <laughs> some numbers. <laughs> Alex, what I what I think is really fascinating and I love that you asked about the equity portion specifically rather than the fund overall because Andrew just talked about mandates of different funds, what they're looking to achieve, how they're going to invest. And the future fund has a very different mandate to the mandate I would have if I was running an equity portfolio in the national interest. I thought, by the way, I think I'm right. I think the future fund is wrong, which is a massive statement. Um, that is hubris personified with a capital H, right? Um, so here's here's the thing. The future fund has a couple of constraints. The first is that it has a requirement to be liquid. And it probably is expected by virtue of kind of institutional imperative and kind of, you know, don't scare the horses, to not have really wide-ranging outcomes. If you're the future fund, you have every journalist and his dog half the opposition looking at you, wanting to point fingers, say, ha, 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 you guys suck, look how badly you've done, right? If I compare that to, and just to make a very quick swipe across to Warren Buffett, compare that to Berkshire, where it's had some years where the, where the Berkshire share price has fallen 20%. If the future fund fell 20% in a given year, the headlines would be merciless, absolutely freaking merciless, and someone would probably lose their job, which would be stupidity because, again, if Buffett was chair of the future fund, he would have been sacked from his job two or three times in the last 50 years. And you ask yourself, would that have been a good idea? And the answer is, of course, it wouldn't be. That would be stupid as well. 
but that's where you find yourself. So the future fund's got some institutional realities that it has to live with, which is part of the, you know, maybe it's maybe it's the cost of democracy, maybe it's the cost of transparency and accountability, and maybe that cost's worth paying. But the the reality is, I if I was running the future fund, I would do what the, I think at Omaha, I think, maybe it's somewhere else in the US Midwest, the, the head of the state pension fund there invests all their money in ETFs and goes on holidays, <laughs> goes fishing, right? And... And there's, you know, smart people are supposed to pick stocks. We've just talked about picking stocks and managed funds and everything else. If I'm running an uber-sized, to use your word, um, national sovereign wealth fund of some degree or other, the value add of trying to mess around and have a whole lot of investment committees and all that kind of rubbish, uh, honestly, mate, if you put me in charge of the future fund tomorrow, I'd fire 95% of the people. I'd have a bookkeeper, someone who allocated the ETFs, and I'd tell the rest of them to go on holidays. Uh, because it's so big, you kind of suggest is it's kind of indexing anyway, not necessarily the way it's run, but that's what I would simply do. The Again, let's talk about the Vanguard chart again. You go back to the Vanguard chart, what are the two best performing asset classes over 30 years? International shares and Australian shares. Not bonds, not property, not cash. Uh, unsurprisingly, right? So, wouldn't it make sense to maximise your exposure to the best performing asset classes? Absolutely. Do they? No, because of the reasons I've just talked about. So honestly, if it was up to me tomorrow, as much as I'd pick stocks for a living, if you put me in charge of the future fund or a big, frankly, any large super fund, I would simply say, index it, go away. Now, you've got to allow some for redemptions, either the future fund or a super fund, so you've got to do that as well. Um, lots of other bits and pieces that need to be done to think about what the reality is. Um, politically, I may not keep my job after more than 12 months or 18 months. If the, if the market sucked, uh, I'd be you know roasted and lambasted and hounded out of office by whoever wanted to do it. Uh, but that's what I would do. So you ask if you're responsible for the equity side, what would I do? Frankly, I would only have an equity side, um, notwithstanding in the, if there's income obligations by the funds. I wouldn't have bonds. I wouldn't have property. I wouldn't have cash. I think it's a waste of time and effort. Um, I would be investing more overseas, by the way, much more overseas. Uh, and capital going into the funds, yeah, I've said before, um, I would put, I would increase uh, resource rents. So the money that's collected from iron ore and oil and other things that get out, taken out of the ground, I would increase that dramatically. And I would put all of that money into a sovereign wealth fund. Uh, in fact, I probably would put the entire current plus future growth of those rents into a sovereign wealth fund um, to bring up the status of the Scandinavian counterpart. These are one-off assets that are being used by the current generation and then, frankly, put into consumption rather than any sort of investment. I think if you are an Australian who takes an asset out of the ground that's been the birthright of Australians for millions of years, or at least for 60,000 years since Aboriginal Australians arrived in the country, um, and then said, after 80,000 years, I'm going, to take, I'm going to be the one who takes it out of the ground. I'm going to go and spend it on Teslas and, and coffee. Uh, sucked in, kids. I've, I've took it out of the ground before you get a chance to get to it. I think it's horribly, horribly, horribly irresponsible. I think it's... Uh, I'll call it a betrayal. I think it is. Um, I think if we're going to take stuff out of the ground that's a one-off asset left for by our forebears, then we should return the value of that, at least as an asset that generates ongoing income. Um, hence the Scandinavian Wealth Fund example, I think... The Norway uh, Sovereign Wealth Fund, plenty of others around the country. The Saudis do something similar. Um, have issues with them in terms of their human rights record, but that's a whole different conversation. Broadly, from a financial perspective, I think one-off assets removed and used or sold should be returned to the Commonwealth and the Commonwealth <laughs> uh, in the form of, of assets that are then used to generate future value, not just used, expended, and then wasted on, on common, common current year consumption. Mm. How'd that go, Ram? Is that ranty enough? It was pretty ranty. No, it was, it was good. Um, uh, I don't really, I don't disagree. No, I don't disagree with any of that kind of stuff. It, it, it right. I agree. I would be more overseas. I would be more equity focused. Um, 
But they've got a very simple mandate. Um, I yeah, know this because yeah. I've been busily reading. Um, <laughs> nice. So they've got, they've got to try and outperform inflation by four and a half to five point five percent. Yeah, which is pretty good. They've done about ten and a half percent per annum over the last ten years. It's pretty yep. good. Yep. Again, you're dealing with billions of dollars here, so it's mm-hmm. it's harder to. It, they've 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 ostensibly done a very good job. Um, yep. And it'd be hard to expect much more than that, frankly. Yeah. Over an, any any meaningful period of time, um, yep. yeah. So no, yeah. I don't, I'm just repeating myself by saying anything more than that. Where it gets tricky and where you could have a much longer conversation is, mm. you know, exactly how it's going to be used yeah. and yeah. could you use that huge volume of money to sort of advocate for you? you mm. There's a constructive capitalism almost. You you, you could almost yeah. take an. Um, uh, a view on, hey, we're not going to invest in X sector or Y sector. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot of great that could be done off the back of this. Um, what do we do with the distributions? How do they get used, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it just goes down and down and down. Just, you get yeah. very political yeah. and very personal and the rest of it. But look, does it have a, is it a good idea? Yes. Is it a good benchmark? I think so. Have they done well so far? Yep. Um, so on the big questions, it's hard to be, it's hard yeah. to be too critical. Yep, well put. I, I think f- far more importantly than how they invest or even maybe the returns they get is simply how much money we put in from a national interest perspective. Yep. Um, speaking of which, if you are interested, um, free plug for myself for the hell of it, uh, I wrote an article back on the 17th of June. Uh, it's titled Our Greatest National Financial Legacy with a question mark after it. It's on the Motley Fool website um, and it's subtitled Why It's Time for an Australian Sovereign Wealth Fund, the Australia Fund, which is my uh, my offering as to maybe what, um, what we should nice. do around the Sovereign Wealth Fund. So if you're interested in my thoughts, if you're not, that's cool. Don't bother looking at it. If you are, uh, just simply Google Motley Fool, Our Greatest National Financial Legacy or something similar. You'll find you'll find the article pretty quickly. It's all there for, for people to read. I've had done a bit of thinking about this. Um, pretty pretty convinced that we are, uh, yeah, betraying the future generations. Um, again, it's an emotive word, but I think it's reasonably true. Hey, um, got a question, mate, from Delphin. Delphin says, "Hi, Scott and Andrew. Delphin emailing. You answered a question for me in regards to diversification and developing a dollar cost averaging uh, regimen earlier this year. I answer your call out for questions." He says, first of all. Some well-deserved thanks and commentary. As a relatively new direct share and ETF investor, the past six months have been a baptism of fire. I bet (laughs) it has, mate. I understand the long-term nature of investing good and that volatility and cyclical downturns are par for the course. But it's still painful to see a screen full of red when I open my brokerage account. Sure is. Your honesty and openness in regards to your own portfolio as an investment approach is worth its weight in gold and has helped my wife and I stay calm and focus on our long-term investment journey, ignoring the noise. Thank you for your excellent work. Mate, that's very kind. Thank you. I'm glad we're helping. Now for my question, he says, it's in relation to investing inside of super versus outside of super. My wife and I are in our mid-30s, so we still have hopefully 40 to 50 years of investing in front of us and won't have access to our super for 25 or 30 years. With that in mind, and generalizing the question to other investors who are still working and have relatively long-term investment runway ahead of them, why would anyone invest outside of super Mm. unless they are investing above the deductible threshold each year? As individuals as of this year, including super and voluntary contributions, we can voluntarily contribute up to 27,500 bucks a year into super as a deductible contribution. So as a couple, two people can contribute up to $55,000. I'm currently using an industry super fund, which allows allocation of funds into baskets of shares and has shown relatively solid index hugging performance. I might swap to a direct investment fund in the years ahead. But either way, he says, by contributing the max voluntary amount towards super each year, 
there's a significant tax bill saving. Yep. In addition, earnings from investment inside super are taxed at 15% as opposed to our marginal tax rate. So, my thesis goes, as long as you're looking at long-term investment, which is what your approach focuses on, the first 27.5 grand as an individual or 55 as a couple you invest each year should be invested through super to access the tax savings in the short term and lower tax rate in the long term. In addition, the money is locked away which has the investment benefit of removing the risk of emotional buying and selling in market fluctuation. To some degree, at least, he says, unless a person is very hands-on with their super investing, with private investment being used if investable capital exceeds the above-mentioned thresholds each year. Am I missing anything massive? Are there reasons one should not invest in super? Are there unforeseen risks? I do have some concern, he says, about legislation changes in the decades ahead. The government may stop super being taken as a lump sum and limit it to a percent of balance per year. But I'm okay with this. Thanks again. Keep up the good work. And as always, full on, says Delphin. <laughs> uh, makes a reasonably cogent case, mate. What would you say? Oh, it's an excellent case. I mean, it's, re- it's really hard to argue against it. I love I love that yeah. uh, it was included there, the lockup as well. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and, and it was spoken of as, as an advantage yeah. in the sense yeah. that once you put it in, it's kind of, <laughs> you, you can't touch it. Yeah. You sort of save yourself from yourself, which, which, yeah. which I love. I mean, those tax savings, everyone loves to save on tax, right? But, mm. but man, you combine those tax savings mm. with mm. The, the compounding ability of 30 years in the market, it's just mm. huge. Oh, it's massive, isn't it? So ma- it's so massive. So, yep. so it's, it's going to be very hard for me to argue against it. Um, and I don't think yeah. I would argue against it. Only to say that there are, that with any economic choice, um, mm. there's, there's, um, there's, there's opportunity cost. Yep. And there's, 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 there's two things to consider. The first and obvious one is that if I do that, I can't touch it. I've just said this is an mm-hmm. advantage, right? But <laughs> so is Delphin, but, but I can't touch it until yep. I'm X years old. And I say mm-hmm. X because he's already touched on the potential for legislative change. So maybe yeah. they increase the, thre- the age yep. that you can access it. Um, uh, or or how in what fashion you can access that that's, that political risk is a real one. We don't know what a government twenty years from now is going to think, what challenges they're going to be facing. Maybe they're in a really desperate war footing and they raid the super balances for for the greater good of the nation, and we're all asked to suck it up and deal. I'm just I don't expect this, by the way, but I'm just you don't know you you, you don't know, and and so that that is that is something to think about. And let's say you put all of your money in and then you get hit by a truck next year or something. You know, it's kind of like there's, there is the whole point of investing is delay gratification. And the longer you, we know mathematically, the longer you delay it, the better the gratification. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I, I get, what am I saying? I don't know what I'm saying. It's very hard to argue with all of that. I guess I'm just saying that, yeah, if you're, if you're very comfortable with not having, you know, that $27,000 that you have, you, you could have a lot of fun with that this year. Mm-hmm. And not everything in life is about maximizing returns. You know, maybe you want to, I don't know, go to Europe and, and just have the, like the time of your life and have a, have a lifetime memory that you will always treasure. Am I, is that right or wrong? Well, well no, not necessarily. It's hard to, it, you know what I mean? I'm saying this yeah. as a finance investing guy and, yeah, and totally, I, I totally. think it's all very good to save and prepare and invest for the future. I'm, I'm all about that and do that myself. Yeah. But, yeah. but at the same time, you know, do you want to be that person who lives on two-minute noodles and lives in a caravan park by choice out in the middle of nowhere so you can maximise everything and then retire when you're 75 and have $10 trillion and 
you know, you, 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 the, the chains of habit are so lightly felt that they're too heavy to be <laughs> to, to be broken, as Buffett says, by the time, you know, that, that you're in a position to enjoy all of that delayed gratification. So it's just it's just a compromise and everyone will have their, a point that is right for them. I, I think it's I think it makes a huge amount of sense to to add more to your super each year. But just 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 balance that off against, you know, the the, the you know the, the very reasonable idea that you want to enjoy yourself as as you as you go through this crazy thing called life. I think that's absolutely right, mate. Um, and look, Delphin and you have covered it, I think, beautifully. Uh, my view: I have money inside super, money outside super invested. The reason I invest outside super is flexibility. Um, and yeah, me too. Mm. That comes at a cost, Delphin. It comes at a financial cost. And, yep. and to Ram's point, um, the problem is you don't have you don't have perfect foresight, right? If I let's let's say. The Motley Fool rings me up. My boss rings me up and I says, Scott, it's been fun. You're done. You're out of here. I say, oh, that sucks. Okay, thanks, boss. But, you know, I guess I'm gone. And I can't or don't find another job or the job I find is not as good as I'd like it to be or whatever, for whatever reason. Or simply I want to take some of that portfolio and turn it into income that I can't take out of super right now and actually supplement my life, either way, income, maybe I work part-time, full-time, higher wage, lower wage. Maybe my wife works, maybe she doesn't, all that kind of stuff. For me, it just gives me flexibility outside super. And that comes at a financial cost. It's absolutely 100% a financial cost. Um, but to my mind, it allows me to feel more comfortable about the structure of my finances. Yeah, and it's a good, um, it's a good point of why there's no right or wrong, right? Because it depends yeah. on you. I mean, having money outside of super was what enabled me to start a business. I, I wouldn't right, have done that go. if I'd thrown every cent in Yeah, there. nice. Maybe I would have been smarter to do to do that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just to, just to emphasize that 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 point, you know, there yep. there is there is um, optionality. Mm. I, I personally place a huge amount of value in optionality. Yeah, there you go. Nice way to put yeah. it. So for me, it's that. Um, yeah, uh, uh, purely financially, often you're you're dead right. If if you knew, you definitely wouldn't need the money until you retired. Super is a slam dunk, absolute slam dunk. The easiest thing in the world to do. Uh, but what if you do need the money, there are genuine hardship provisions, but they're relatively, and they should be relatively strict. Um, so I would, I would have at least a small portion of my investable assets outside super just for pure flexibility. Um, uh, you know, again, what if you need a lump sum for X? What if starting a business, replacing a car, uh, you know, maybe you end up with triplets instead of, instead of a single kid and you've got to build another story on your house or sell your house and buy, or whatever it is, right? Just to my mind, um, I'd happily take lower returns for the optionality and, and, uh, who's who's is it jobs or bezos some of the regret minimization framework i can't remember who's that is. yes um, yeah but that, that idea of just you know it, it, whatever circumstances happen whatever range of circumstances happen um what am i likely to regret least and for me if i have to pay tax at 30 percent rather than 15 percent on those earnings am i going to regret that yes uh but is that is that a lower regret than needing money not being able to access it yes and so for me it's just a, it's just a straight trade-off and, but, and, the, um, yeah. and the other thing that's nice too here it's not a black or white and yeah. it's not being yeah. pitched this way. I understand it, but you know, you, you, yeah. there is a there is a middle path, as the Buddhists yeah. would say. You know, you you, you can you can add or a little Tony bit Blair. extra. Well, yes, yeah. there's a third way. There's a third way. <laughs> so, so you 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 can add a little bit more in yeah. um, than than otherwise would be the case, and also keep some out of it. So, and and, and the and the right answer will depend on you as a person and your preferences and your priorities. Mate, t- time for one more. I think um, actually two more because this is just an easy one. <coughs> wow, big cough. Sorry, guys. Hi, Scott and Rampage, says Brad. Love listening to the pod and never miss an episode. CSL and the Vanguard Total US Market ETF are obviously two very different types of shares. Yes. Hmm. But at the moment, they are roughly the same price. 
between $261 and $265. Now, I thought we we're going to get one of those, how much is a pizza, what's worth more or whatever. Uh, but I just like Brad's, Brad's question. Uh, which do you think has the higher share price over the next 5, 10, and 15 years? Thanks to the endless hours of entertainment you provide each week. Keep up the good work. Full on, Brad. Now, we will say price of pizza, blah, blah, blah. These could have been a $15 share price and $150 share price. What he's really asking is which has the best percentage return. The fact they're starting from the same base makes it a nice neck and neck race. Um, so, you know, Brad, you know they're different. You know you shouldn't compare just on per share price alone. But given an equalized starting point, it's easy to measure uh, performance from this point forward. So, Ram, what do you reckon, mate? Uh, regardless of what the actual per share price is now, five, 10, and 15 years, does CSL beat the US total market? Or does the US total market show CSL a clean pair of heels? Great question. And I'll just to double down on this. So there could be there's plenty of stocks out there on the ASX that worth 10 cents each and they're much yeah. more expensive than CSL. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because they're just, they're probably worthless companies. Yes, so correct. again, it, it, it doesn't matter. You've made that point, but just to emphasize it. No, I like it. Yep. I don't know, obviously, but my money would be on CSL. Or let me, put it, let me put it this way. It, it, it at least has the potential to. So with the US mm. economy, I mean, the US, the U.S. economy could just be on fire for the next decade or two, mm-hmm. but it's never going to grow more than like, the, out, the, the absolute outside maybe 5% per year, mm-hmm. right? Because it's just so big. I mean, you can't – it's very – unless there's some new technology that comes along that no one's conceived of or something, you know. China has, has – is we understand the economic miracle that that has achieved, and that's been 7% per year, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, almost to the to the to the mm-hmm. yeah, hundredth decimal place. Yeah. <laughs> um, CSL is a hundred and forty billion dollar company, yep. which is pretty small in the grand scheme of things. Mm-hmm. So in theory, they could go more right, aggressively. They a trillion dollar business. They could easily be a trillion. Well, easily. They they they, they have the potential <laughs> to be a trillion dollar business, right? Yeah. So they 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 could go much more aggressively into very large markets like Europe and Asia mm-hmm. and America. Mm-hmm. Um uh you know, so so they have the potential to grow much larger. So in that we know that look, sorry, you can't we've talked about the dangers of extrapolation and the rest mm-hmm. of it. And you know they've obviously grown much faster than, than than the U.S. economy has over the last ten and twenty years. I think as they get larger, we've talked about this before. The larger you get, the harder that growth is. But yeah. they've got that. They've got the if they're well managed, they've got much more potential. So so the, so the upside favors CSL. And we just said before too that there's always an opportunity cost. Well, the other the flip side of that is it's 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 got a higher return potential, but it's got higher risk as well. Yeah. Now I know it's a very big blue chip safe company, and out of all the companies on the ASX, it's got to be up in the top you know ten or twenty in terms of most reliable safe businesses. But it's mm. still a single point of failure, and and something could go terribly terribly wrong. Mm. So I would say it's there's almost next to zero chance that the U.S. economy goes to zero. <laughs> but yeah, right. you know, but there's a good, well, not a good chance. There's there's a higher chance that mm. CSL goes to zero. So so it's it's a higher risk reward proposition. You get you get a higher reward potential, but with greater risk. Having said that, both are pretty low risk quality investments. So you know, take mm. take, take take your point. But I, and, and as much as I think I don't own shares in CSL, just for the record, mm. um, not because I don't like it, just opportunity cost and you know style preferences and the rest of it. But I, I think it's a great business and I would not be too upset to have a big chunk of my money in it. But no matter how much I loved it, I would never put all of my money into it. And I, I just said before, there's a, middle, there's a middle path, you know. 
by by eighty percent into the US index ETF, and then and then oh, I mean, I shouldn't put numbers out there. Put some into to, to the US uh, uh, market ETF, and then put a little basket of shares that you think are, are pretty cool businesses like CSL. You know, mix it up. Yeah, I like that. Um, I, I'm going to have two questions. I'm going to have time for this one because we kind of chatted for a bit about it. Um, uh, it's funny, but as much as you're comparing the two, what you're really saying is, CS, is, is CSL going to be market beating? Because <laughs> the Vanguard total market index is the market, at least the US market in this case. Um, so really what you're saying is Vanguard going to be market beating or not, right? Because that, that's, that's really the question here is simply you get the market return by buying the market or you buy CSL, as Ram said, um, you, you get the, the company return. Um, if I think about, uh, you mate, you've captured it beautifully, Ram, that there's just simply not the range of outcomes with the total market. Over, over, over a multi-decade horizon. So let's go out to 15. Five years, by the way, it could be anything. I have no idea. Absolutely zero view. Um, 10 to 15 years, I have more of a view. 15, let's go 15 years for fun. Um, the market's probably going to do about 10% a year, give or take, over that sort of elongated time period. Maybe it's eight, maybe it's 12, but it's kind of that, that general range if history repeats. So I, I, have a, I have a pretty good you know, confidence about that. CSL, because you're dealing with not only the business itself, but also investor expectations, CSL beats the market if investors just decide the PE should be higher. <laughs> you know, it really does because it takes not more than that. If the PE goes from forty to sixty, that's a fifty percent increase in the share price, and, and without earning a single dollar more in, in earnings. If the PE goes from forty to twenty-five, you've got a almost fifty percent was it thirty forty percent decline in the share price, and the business could not make or lose a single dollar of profit. So the the, the, the simple impacts on the share price, both the business itself and investor expectations shown through in a PE are just massive. The total market PE might go from 14 to 18 and back again or something. But again, the range of outcomes, both in terms of the, the profitability of those companies or, or instruments, if you like to use the, the, the wanky finance term, uh, and the investor sentiment pieces are just really, really different for both those, both those two things. Uh, I will actually say that I think CSL's got a better chance of being market beating in the short term rather than the long term. I, what I mean by that is effectively, if you think about 10 years, if you think about a, a 10% return over 15 years, what's that, mate? That's probably a double. Is it two doubles? Probably two doubles. Mm -hmm. So you go from 265 to about 1,000, right? To make my maths really simple. If you get 10% return, you double every seven years. 14 years, close enough 15 years, let's call it a double, call it 1,000 bucks. CSL would have to do, short of a PE difference, a, a meaningful amount of growth from an already very large business that it'd have to be a... We said it was $140 billion, did you say, Ram? I think so, um, yeah, something like that. It'd be a $560 yeah. billion business by then. Could it do it? Absolutely. And as you say, mate, you know, they discover a brand new, uh, you know, immunization, a brand new blood product, a brand new bit of technology. It, yes. Can this be a billion-dollar business in 15 years? Absolutely. Mm. So the, the sheer range of outcomes is massive. Could it also, like the banks we talked about this episode or last Friday, I can't remember when, um, hit some sort of plateau? and just be a really good, safe, solid, low-growth business, yeah, it absolutely could do that as well. And in which mm -hmm. case, not only would the profits flatline, but PE would probably contract and the share price would fall. So if you're saying to me, um, which of those two is most likely with the highest probability to give me $1,000 in 15 years' time, I'm all in on, on the Vanguard total market. Uh, because it's just, you know, if, if $1,000 is what you want by then and the highest probability, I think, I think it's the, the total market ETF. The CSL range of outcomes is just really broad. My biggest issue with CSL is it's already the largest player in its space in the world. Unless it invents new markets and new products and new categories, it actually can't grow to that degree in my view. Now, I say it won't. I'm saying what it would have to do is innovate in ways I can't imagine yet. And that might be a failure of imagination from me, 
But if I was going to say I'm going to invest 15 years, come and have a peek behind the curtain in 15 years' time and see which one's done best, I would probably take a 10%, nothing's guaranteed, 10% very, very likely annual return from, from the Vanguard total market rather than putting my chips on CSL and hoping it comes up with some new way of doing some cool new stuff. But could it? Absolutely. And if it's beating the, if it's beating the Vanguard in 15 years, I won't be the slightest bit surprised. I just don't have a high degree of confidence in my ability to, to foresee that specifically. And if it was $500 rather than $1,000 in 50 years time, I was like, okay, that's reasonable. Mm-hmm. If it's seven fifty, yeah, it's fair. If it's $2,000, yeah, that's probable. Uh, but could I, could I with confidence do it? No, so I would choose the Vanguard total market. There you go, one each way to finish off the podcast. Nice. Ram, will you come back on Friday? Yes, absolutely. We have a lot more in the mailbag too. Make sure you do email us if you've got more questions, but we have heaps, including, unfortunately, to my chagrin, a whole lot of Bitcoin follow-up episode <laughs> questions, which uh, I will put off for as long as I possibly can, but at some point we may have to come back to that one. and that would just You know I'm keen. That would just make me sad. Until then, have a wonderful rest of your day. If you're listening to this at 8 o'clock in the morning on your run, good on you. If you're listening to it later, that's cool too. Enjoy it, and we'll talk to you on Friday. Full on. Cheers. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under financial services licence 400691. Listener.